So this is what I want to explore today as we jump ahead to Mark chapter 9. We've spent the last several weeks working through Mark 7. We're going to to skip over Mark 8, not because it's unimportant, but because Mark 9 is where the lectionary takes us this morning. But Mark chapter 8, we see Jesus perform several miracles. He feeds thousands of people with a meager lunch. He heals a man who is blind. And then we see him continuing to travel around with his disciples in itinerant fashion, teaching, and we even see him foretell his death. Today we jump ahead to Mark chapter 9, and we pick it up near the end of the chapter in verse 30. This is what we read. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. So we find here in Mark chapter 9, the disciples and Jesus once again on the move. And If you've been paying attention to this section in Mark, they've been traveling quite a bit recently. They've moved from the the region of Tyre and Sidon up north in modern-day Lebanon and headed down to the Decapolis. We talked about that last week, the southeastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And they're traveling throughout Galilee now and heading back to Capernaum. And once again, a sentiment that was expressed back in chapter 7, Jesus is hoping that they remain undetected, at least in part due to some of the things he's teaching about. Mark tells us one of those things is the fact that he is pointing the disciples ahead to a time when he would be killed. Now, the disciples apparently didn't really understand exactly what Jesus was insinuating through some of these statements about his death, and it seems that they didn't really care to know. Let's just ignore the part where you talk about your death. I don't really want to know what you mean by that. Let's focus on the positives here. So one thing the disciples seem to be convinced of is that in all of that cryptic talk about his death, he's ultimately pointing ahead to his victory. So right around the corner, Jesus would be arriving triumphantly in his kingdom. And so the disciples are thinking, okay, you're going to die, but really this is just some cryptic code for the fact that you are going to be tasting victory relatively quickly. So let's focus on your victory here. We continue reading in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? So the mood changes a little bit. Jesus asks the disciples about a conversation they had been having, and they say nothing, sort of close their eyes. Have you ever seen that GIF? Uh, I guess we should determine whether or not we're going to say GIF or GIF. I choose GIF. So just bear with me if that's not your preferred um, word. But have you seen that GIF of Homer Simpson backing into the shrubs? Do you know what I'm talking about? I understand that that was a part of an episode, but that wasn't on the approved television list in my home. So to me, it's just a graphic. But that that graphic of Homer Simpson backing into the shrubs and disappearing, you've seen that? That's sort of what I picture happening here with the disciples. Um, Have you ever wished that you had that superpower? A lot of times I wish if I could have any superpower, that would be it. I'm faced with an uncomfortable situation, 
and a giant shrub just magically appears behind me and I can take a couple steps back and just completely disappear, be, be taken out of that uncomfortable situation. But this is what I picture going on here. So the disciples have been traveling quite a bit with Jesus, but it's not like they're packed into a tiny sedan where everybody hears everything that is said. No, they're traveling by foot, and so there are multiple conversations going on uh, among various groups of people, and apparently one of the ongoing conversations during their travels that the participants had hoped that they would conceal it from Jesus. They hoped Jesus wasn't going to pick up on the conversation they were having. But, we are told, Jesus heard it. He was aware of this conversation, and he asks about it. Hey, what, what were you talking about back there at mile 87? This is just such a classic parent-child exchange, where you hear the question, and immediately when the question comes out of your parents' mouth, you know that you're caught. Do you know what I'm talking about? When, when I was in elementary and middle school, my mom was a substitute teacher in my school, which is not an ideal situation. By the time I got to high school, I put an end to that arrangement. I was not going to stand for my mom subbing in my high school. But in elementary and junior high, she was a sub in my school. And I remember on one occasion in middle school, I was misbehaving in the hall. And I thought I was safe, which I assure you was an isolated incident. And I thought I was safe to engage in whatever, whatever activity it was because my mom was at home when I left for school. But what I didn't know was that she got a call late in the day to fill in for a teacher that had went home sick. And she was at school that day and serendipitously happened to be in the hallway to observe my impropriety. But I didn't know that she was watching until I got home and she asked me the question, hey, what was going on in the hall between fifth and sixth hour this afternoon? And as soon as she said it, I knew that I was caught. I knew that this question was actually a trap. She didn't really want to know what was going on. Jesus says, hey, what were you guys discussing back there as we were traveling? And the disciples are at least smart enough to know this is a trap. And so we read this, that they're seen sort of backing into the shrubs, as it were. Verse 34, but they kept silent. They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus asks the question. They keep silent. If we can't see him, he can't see us. So let's just keep our mouths shut. We won't implicate ourselves further. If we're silent, maybe he'll just forget about this and move on. And they wanted him to forget about it. Why? because as Mark tells us, because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. So they assumed that the reign of the Son of Man was at hand based on some things that Jesus had talked about. They assumed that victory is right around the corner, and if victory is ultimately right around the corner, then we need to start divvying up the rewards. We need to start determining what our positions in his kingdom might be. So they start bickering back and forth. Well, I've been with him the longest. Yeah, but in my short time with him, we've actually become really close. We're a lot closer than you are. Well, he was in this bind back there, there on this situation, and I really helped him out of that. And it's just this back and forth. Let's compare our resumes and see who really is the closest to him. 
This is sort of what I picture occurring in the political realm when somebody is elected to office. I'm sure their phone starts ringing off the hook. Hey, do you remember when I helped you out when you were in high school? Well, I, I need some kickback for that, right? So let's delineate positions and responsibilities and figure out those potential kickbacks. Now, why was this such a big deal? Why are the disciples embarrassed about the conversation and the fact that it was exposed? Well, because this is something Jesus has addressed multiple times as he's been traveling with the disciples. We actually see it in the previous chapter. Chapter 8, when Jesus is foretelling his death, and you may remember that story where Peter rebukes him for all of that negative self-talk. But we pick it up in verse 34 and see how Jesus responds there. Chapter 8, verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. If you try to save your life and you try to elevate your own concerns above everything else, in the end, you're going to lose the life, the, the very thing you're trying to save. And then almost no time passes, at least in the way that Mark organizes this material, almost no time passes before they are arguing with one another about who is going to be his right-hand man and who is going to be stuck cleaning the toilets and serving everybody else. Of course they're embarrassed that Jesus has heard this conversation. And so Jesus once again attempts to communicate some of these themes in a new way though. Saying that rivalry, that, that infighting, that the fact that you're jockeying for position in my kingdom, all of that is useless. And in the next section of teaching, I think we discover why it's useless. Verse 35, and he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So in response to this argument, about who is greater, Jesus says, if anyone would be first, they must be last of all, they must be servant of all. What does that even mean? It doesn't make sense. It seems like a convoluted version of Ricky Bobby's, if you're not first, you're last, right? It doesn't make sense. You, you can be last of all and servant of all, but that doesn't make you first. You're, you're, you're still last. And maybe that's one of the points Jesus is making. The rankings that we come up with to determine who is higher mean nothing. They mean nothing. And if any system of ranking among rivals is valid, according to Jesus, it's the complete inverse of what we would actually expect. I've always loved that Me Without You lyric from the song January 1979. It says... If I could become a servant of all, 
no lower place to fall. If I could become a servant of all, no lower place to fall. Jesus says, if you want to be first, be last. Serve all. Because if you begin serving all, then there's no need for rivalry. You have no desire to be at the top or to be first. There's no need for competition. You're not trying to get above anybody else. You aren't worried that somebody else is going to outpace you or outdo you in the game of life. Do you see the, the beauty and the freedom that comes from adopting the posture that Jesus is arguing for here? And then he uses a visual object lesson to sort of put some flesh on the broader point that he's making. He takes a young child, says, look, if you receive this child, you receive me. And you receive the one who sent me. Now, this is a striking statement. First of all, because he's, again, giving dignity to a segment of society that had no rights, a segment of society that, generally speaking, had little appreciation. We've been talking over the past months about some of these groups that were on the margins of society in the first century world. This is another one of those groups. And Jesus brings them into, or brings one of them into the center of this circle, and in so doing, gives them dignity and says, if you want to receive me, you better receive this little one. Now, before we continue, I think maybe it would be good for us to pause here and consider the question, well, then how do we receive children? Because that's the specific example Jesus is using. How do we receive children? as a congregation or individually? Are they a nuisance? Are they an inconvenience? Sometimes, yeah. Can we ignore them because we have much more important adult matters to consider? Well, our answer to all of those questions really needs to be no, because we recognize the dignity we recognize the image of God in each one of these children scattered around our building this morning, and we want to intentionally nurture that. Now, none of this means that there isn't room for a proper recognition of an authoritative voice in a child's life, a voice that is concerned with keeping them safe at such a young and vulnerable and impressionable age. And sometimes blind obedience from children is appropriate. Sometimes they don't have to understand in the moment why I'm being told no, but for their safety, they just need to know to stop that activity. And then an explanation can follow. That what Jesus is getting at here is not about worshiping children. It's not about allowing the demands of children to govern all of our affairs or that children have to set the tone for the family because whatever they want in this moment, well, that's what they're going to get. Like all things, there is balance to be sure, but Jesus does say, if you receive these little ones, if you treat them with care and grace, you receive me. If you treat them with care and grace, you receive me. Now, how might this teaching related to these young children, how might that be connected to the broader point about being a servant of all rather than rivaling one another for position and rank? 
Well, I think we find the answer when we discover that maybe it's not just the words that Jesus says that speak something powerfully, but maybe it's his action. He takes this child into his arms. Think about that for a moment. Think about the last time you held an infant or a young child. Maybe you're doing it now. What was the nature of that activity? It was gentle, right? It's a delicate affair to hold an infant. And sure, there is a time for playful roughhousing. I think that is appropriate and good for children. But generally speaking, especially with children that you may not know well, the appropriate demeanor when interacting with children is mild, not aggressive, not dominating, not angry, but gentle. Is it possible that as Jesus takes this child into his arms, he communicates something just as powerfully with that action as he does with his words, and that is that it's difficult to maintain that competitive edge and to remain angry with your rival when you have a child in your arms? Because you know how impressionable they are. You don't want them to pick up on some of those negative characteristics. You don't want them to be frightened or scared by the anger they see coming out of you. It's difficult to remain angry when you have a young life in your arms. So here's the question I want to raise today. Is it possible that the statement from Jesus we find isn't just a declaration about the value of children, which I do think it is that, but... Could it also be seen as at least one of the antidotes to rivalry and anger? Could remembering the children and actively receiving the children serve as a corrective action for the pervasive competition among the disciples? You know, if we are constantly fighting and arguing and bickering back and forth, whether that's in person or via social media, or, or trying to prove a point, and trying to prove why we're the enlightened ones, or, you, you know, we may leave those interactions feeling really good about ourselves, maybe feeling deeper entrenched into our own perspective, but I think one of the negative side effects is that we end up neglecting more important matters. We may neglect People with very real needs like the little ones that Jesus is referring to here because our own progress or proving a point is the most important thing to us. So the rivalries that exist between human beings, those are futile. They almost always produce nothing productive. But what they are successful at is wasting our time and energy. We get so concerned about maintaining our position or picking a fight or taking a step up on the ladder of comparison that all of our energy and all of our mental effort is expended on those goals and it's gone. We, we have limited resources and so when we spend all of our time and energy on those arguments, we don't have any personal reserves left in the tank in order to serve. Now, clearly, the disciples have quite a bit of trouble grasping this idea. Jesus has to return to it time and time again. 
And I don't know about you, but this is one of those concepts that is difficult for me to grasp as well. I like what I recently heard Jonathan Martin say in this regard. He said, I think I'm completely comfortable with Jesus' demand that I be a servant until somebody actually talks to me like a servant. That is where I am. It's my desire to be at the top. It's, it's my desire to be the one that is served and to advance and succeed. That's what makes the teaching of Jesus so offensive. But perhaps, as we think about Jesus welcoming this child into his arms, into the center of the circle, perhaps a recommitment to spend our lives as the servants of all, to receive the little ones in an active manner, maybe that could be the remedy for that unending pull we feel towards rivalry. The, the aggression and the rivalry that makes our world go round is not the only model available to us. It is the dominant model, but it's not the only model. Jesus gives us an alternative. And in that alternative, in that positive action, we find a means of actively seeking to suffocate that competitive spirit within us. Humble service for children. Humble service for the little ones. Could that be the antidote to anger and rivalry and competition? And not just the little ones in our own families or our congregation, but our neighborhood, maybe the neighborhood you live in, or Weller Elementary School, or maybe it's not even specifically children. Active service for the little ones, those who don't have a voice. Maybe in our culture, we would think of the elderly. I think there is a lot of overlap between what, is Jesus, what, between what Jesus is speaking about here and the fact that this group of people is seen as an inconvenience. There's a lot of overlap in our culture when it comes to the elderly. But humble service, I think this is one of the points Jesus is making, humble service softens our hearts. It just does. It always softens our hearts. It reminds us of what is important. It will serve to convince me that my progress is not the only thing I'm striving for because I'm face-to-face -face with need. I'm face-to-face -face with somebody that needs a voice. The never-ending ladder of advancement and rivalry, it's not a sustainable way of life. It's not a sustainable way of life. But I think Jesus gives us something that is sustainable. Becoming a servant for all. And so maybe it's wise if we would at least temporarily lay down some of our ambition. That's not a popular idea. But maybe at least temporarily we would lay down some of our ambition so that we could become a servant of all. And then it's just this endless cycle. That service changes our hearts. It changes our desires and our goals. And then maybe eventually we can pick up some of that ambition again, but this way in a healthy way that isn't just trying to get us ahead of our neighbor. The disciples in this story are once again arguing about who is better, who should have a higher rank, who should be the right-hand man in the kingdom. And Jesus says, cut it out and look at these children. 
forget about your own ambitions for a moment and be reminded of who you are called to be and what you are called to do. Amen. Would you stand this morning as we move to a time of celebration around the table of our Lord? This morning, we are reminded through these elements at the table that it is service for all that is the only reliable path to integrated living. So our prayer is, Jesus, may we be captivated by your teaching. May we also be captivated by your example the one who receives the little ones, the one who takes the little ones into his arms, and ultimately as we gather around this table, the one who lays down his life for his friends. Amen. By way of invitation this morning, I'd invite you to join me in a prayer, the prayer of St. Francis. Many of you are familiar with it. It'll be on the screen. Would you join me? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?